Imagine a scenario where you're in the mood for a true crime podcast. You take out your headphones and press play on the first recommendation. You're excited to delve into an eerie and chilling case. Is someone missing? Is there a conspiracy about to be uncovered? As you listen to the beginning, you're met with a startling surprise. The podcast sucks. And now imagine that you're listening to a different podcast, one that exceeds your expectations. The storytelling is well done. The details are thoroughly researched. The music is chilling and unsettling. And then there's the best part. You get to listen to my deep and creepy voice. When you listen to Still Unsolved, you get to join us as we bring the true crime genre back to its roots. Every week, we highlight different cases of missing persons, wanted felons, unsolved murders, and the truly bizarre occurrences of life. Subscribe to Still Unsolved wherever you like to listen to your podcasts and join us. With your help, some of these cases may no longer be an unsolved mystery. You're listening to True Crime Feed. Welcome to True Crime Feed. I'm your host, Angela Ferrari, reviewing the best true crime podcasts from the past decade with a teensy bit of humor, plus my top three true crime picks of the week. Up first on the docket, uh, I don't even know where to start. I am heartbroken over this one, but we can work through our emotions together. This is a story that first came to my attention from the podcast Swindled, hosted by the very mysterious person who goes by the moniker A Concerned Citizen. He has ruined a few other people I formerly idolized. I especially blame him for destroying my childlike faith in humanity with his episode about Mother Teresa. That was one of the most disturbing and depressing episodes I have ever heard. Only listen to that one if you have about a dozen emotional support corgi puppies on hand. We're not going to go that dark today, but we are about to get real teed off at the former Fuji frontman Wyclef Jean. And to take your listening experience to the next level, go to thetruecrimefeed.com and sign up for my newsletter where I curate visual aids to accompany the show. We have tons of pics of Yelle Haiti charity events packed with celebrities all congratulating themselves on making a difference. And I should also mention it'd probably be a good idea to keep a vomit bag nearby for this episode because you're about to encounter some really barf-worthy details about Wyclef Jean. But I can't tell you the story of Wyclef without telling you a brief story about Haiti. Bear with me, this will be just a quick little history, and I aspire to be as cohesive as Cher Horowitz from Clueless when she pontificated to her public speaking class about Haiti, a country whose origins are unlike anywhere else in the world. Nestled in the Caribbean, it was Taino land, a paradise. Then Columbus came and crashed the party. It was then a colonial Spanish settlement until the French bulged in at the turn of the 18th century, naming the colony Saint-Dominique. Europeans wanted that sugar, and the sugar cane grew sweet and plentiful on Saint-Dominique. The French capitalized on the trade, 
which meant shipping over a vast number of slaves from Africa to work the plantations, allowing the French to establish one of the richest colonies in the world. This carried on for nearly a hundred years. The French grew their empire in Saint-Dominique off the backs of slave labor. Until the slaves had enough. In 1789, the workers staged a revolt against the colonizers, while at the same time the French ruling class were busy fighting against another revolution at home. Spoiler alert, it did not go well for Marie Antoinette and Louis XVI. In fact, it was a real pain in the neck. Ooh, sorry, too soon, too soon. Anywho's all, then Napoleon Bonaparte, aka I wish I was a little bit taller, I wish I was a baller, I wish to smash a monarchy and roll with a ruffled lace collar, holla, becomes the new frontman of France. Anyway, back to the Caribbean colony. Under the direction of former slave-turned-general Toussaint Louverture, the slaves take over and proclaim their independence in 1802. Napoleon, who is now the self-proclaimed Emperor of France, sends his troops to the colony to take back control. It doesn't go well. When their beloved general Toussaint Louverture is arrested and dies in prison, the locals fight back with a vengeance. More former slaves turn generals, including Jean-Jacques Dessalines, wage fierce battles forcing Napoleon's soldiers to abandon the island. They then massacre the remaining 5,000 French colonists. This was the birth of Haiti, a nation of freed slaves, the world's first black republic free of slavery, a land where white men were prohibited from owning property, a nation that was a threat to the existing world order. Right from the jump, Haiti has a target on its back. The outside hashtag influencers would do everything in their power to keep Haiti down so other slave nations wouldn't get any ideas. At first, France and their allies hold off on sending in any troops. Instead, they smother Haiti's economy through isolation. And so begins the pattern of leaders coming to power in Haiti and being impeded by powerful influences, then taken down. Even as early as 1825, they are still just brand new. Metaphorically, Haiti was just like in their 20s, and they make some pretty bad decisions. But who among us hasn't? At this time, France surprises Haiti, rolling up with a flotilla of armed warships. And Haiti was all like, yo, I thought we broke up. And France was all like, yeah, well, you still owe us 150 million francs if you want to stay independent. Oh, we're going to bomb you. And guess what, guys? Haiti agreed. They had to pay back France over the course of 122 years. What is equivalent of $25 billion? And I thought my college loans were rough. Fast forward to 1969, just north of Port-au-Prince, future rapper musician Wyclef Jean was born, the son of a Nazarene preacher and his grandfather a voodoo priest. It was a time of particularly bad political and social upheaval under the fierce corrupt dictatorship of Francois Duvalier, a.k.a. Papa Doc who was preceded by his 19-year-old son, Baby Doc. Yeah, cute nicknames for some real brutal guys who were running a straight-up kleptocracy. Like many Haitians looking for a better life, Wyclef's family immigrates to America when he was just nine years old. They first go to Brooklyn and eventually settle in New Jersey. Wyclef grew up in a Haitian-French-speaking household, but learns English through music, especially hip-hop. 
Much to his father's chagrin, he learns to play music on toy instruments. He hones his craft and levels up to real instruments. His father gives him an ultimatum: no more secular music, or you're out of the house. So yeah, Wycliffe is now homeless, and he moves into his cousin's basement. He forms a group in the late '80s called the Translator Crew, and that's translator with a Z. This group includes his cousin Pras and the illustrious Miss Lauren Hill, El Boogie up in here, who is still in high school at the time. These three go on to form the Fugees, a play on the derogatory term for refugee. In 1996, they released their album The Score, which included legendary tracks like Ready or Not and Lauren's beautiful rendition of Killing Me Softly. They win Grammys for Best Rap Album and Best R&B Vocal Performance. The Fugees were on the top of their game until things go foobar. You see, Wyclef Jean and Lauren Hill were having an affair whilst Wyclef was married. Wyclef's wife Claudinette finds out it does not go well. He wants to stay with Claudinette and work on their marriage. Lauren and Wyclef have a falling out, and it comes to a head when Lauren gets pregnant. And supposedly insinuates that maybe Wyclef was the father, but it turned out the dad was actually Rohan Marley, the son of Bob Marley. So by 1997, the Fugees sadly break up, but not before they put on one last epic coming home concert in Haiti. It was a really powerful show. Truly, it helped change the prevailing views of Americans towards Haiti and Haitian immigrants. It would have been incredible to see the Fugees continue their collaboration, but instead they go their separate ways, and each former member goes on to have success in solo careers as well as brushes with controversy. Lauren Hill released the Miseducation of Lauren Hill in 1998, and middle school Angela couldn't get enough, especially that song X Factor. Oh my gosh! This is like a very heavy adult song about ending a complicated, toxic relationship. But in my head, I was applying it to the boys at school who wouldn't slow dance with me. And from that point on, I became a forever Lauren Hill fan and apologist. I love that she played Rita Louise Watson in the movie Sister Act Two, back in the habit, and then goes on to talk smack about the Catholic Church and pedophile priests while performing at the Vatican. And yes, she also neglected to pay close to a million dollars in taxes. But because it's Lauren, I'm kind of like, good for her. I think the worst thing I've heard is that session musicians don't always like playing with her. She would often change up the set list, underpay, and fire folks on the spot. Which, yeah, not cool, El Boogie. But I can't stand when people still bring up that false quote that she purportedly said something like, "I would rather my children starve than have a white person buy one of my albums." Dude, she never actually said that. That was a rumor started on the Howard Stern show. It's kind of like that rumor that was going around in the '90s that Mr. Rogers was a former Navy SEAL sniper assassin. Not true. All fake. Listen, Lauren doesn't care what race you are. She will happily accept your money. She just might not pay taxes on it, but whatever. Hashtag Team Lauren Hill. Frankly, none of these deeds are a major letdown to me in comparison to her other Fuji's cohorts. Speaking of letdowns, let's talk about Pras. 
He had that hit Ghetto Superstar with Maya and Old Dirty B, but honestly, I forgot he was even on the track. I don't think he's like bad, but kind of a nothing burger filler licks in between Maya's beautiful chorus and Old DB being out of his mind and perfect in every way. But that's okay because Praz always saw himself as more of the money guy, a true businessman and investor. When in actuality, he was a key player in what may have been one of the largest criminal conspiracies in our time. When he partnered with the Malaysian financier Joe Lowe, stealing billions of dollars from the country of Malaysia through their wealth fund 1MDB. I have a whole episode about this coming up in the pipeline. It's definitely going to tarnish your view of Leonardo DiCaprio. But again, a story for another time. Instead, we are here to talk about another heartbreaker, Wyclef Jean. So he has a successful solo career right from the jump with hits like Gone Till November and We Trying to Stay Alive, which sampled Staying Alive. It's a total banger. Plus tons of collab tracks with Carlos Santana, Akon, and Shakira, Shakira. But he sets his sights on something grander, a true legacy to help rebuild his home country of Haiti a country that was now one of the poorest in the world, with the average Haitian citizen surviving on less than $2 a day. They are in desperate need of help. So he starts the Wyclef Jean Foundation, better known as Yele Haiti, which translates to Cry for Haiti. When starting this charity, Wyclef spoke out about the countless NGOs that came to make a, quote, difference, but weren't really serving those in need. Wyclef pledged to do things the right way to truly get the money into the hands of the people of Haiti who needed it most. He started the foundation in 2004 and Haiti really needed help at that time because that year they were hit by three devastating hurricanes, killing, injuring, and displacing thousands of Haitians. This was all compounded with a messy on-again, off-again relationship the citizens were having with President Jean-Baton Aristide, a story that has been expertly covered by the series Silence the Radio Murders, currently in my True Crime Feed Hall of Fame. So in response to this devastation, Yele Haiti provided scholarships for children, clean water, school funding, and meals for the Haitian people. Around this time, Yele Haiti has around $37,000 in assets. It sounds pretty good so far, like a real charity. Then in 2010, an earthquake hits just outside of Port-au-Prince and demolishes Haiti. The death toll was anywhere from 100 to 200,000. And obviously they don't have strict building codes in Haiti, so homes were easily leveled by the quake and aftershock. So now there are 500,000 to a million people homeless. An already terrible economy became practically non-existent and things seemed to only get worse after the quake. There was confusion over who was in charge. Essential services and infrastructure, including hospitals, had been destroyed. There was no clean water or fuel available. It was a huge challenge to distribute aid. Air traffic control was a mess. There was looting and violence. Plus, you have heat and humidity, poor sanitation, decomposing bodies in the streets. It sounded like absolute hell on earth. Now Haiti really, really needed help. So Wyclef first makes a plea on Twitter and raises over a million dollars in less than 24 hours. 
Yale Haiti partners with UNICEF to organize a live star-studded telethon with MTV called Hope for Haiti Now, co-hosted with George Clooney. To this day, Hope for Haiti Now was the most watched telethon in history. In total, Yale Haiti raises over 16 million in donations for Haiti. That's amazing, Wyclef. You did it, man. Now time to get the money to the Haitian people, right? Right? Well, yes, but first the charity needs to cover some operating expenses. Yale Haiti spends over $600,000 on their headquarters in New York. A little on the pricey side, but fine. But ooh, they're spending an additional $375 for landscaping. Because I guess more important for Yale Haiti is to have some dope topiaries and water features instead of, you know, food and water for people dying in the streets. Oh, and Wyclef also needs an additional $37,000 in rent for a production studio in Manhattan. And you know the staff has got to eat, so Yale Haiti spends over $400,000 on food and beverages. Because the staff runs more optimal on Kobe beef and Lafitte Bordeaux, okay? And speaking of staff, Yele pays over $500,000 to various members of Wyclef's family for unspecified work, plus over $100,000 to his personal assistant, who he also happens to be boning, which was a much higher salary than the Yele Haiti program director at the time. Although his personal assistant was putting in the extra hours. (sighs) So okay now. We have our operational expenses covered. Time to really buckle down and start delivering the goods to the people of Haiti, right? Right? Oh, wait. Yale Haiti has some other fundraising expenses. They have to pay $30,000 to fly Lindsay Lohan via private jet from New Jersey to Chicago for a charity event that only raised $66,000. While we're on the topic of P-Jets, Matt Damon, Angelina Jolie, and Brad Pitt want to come to Haiti and do their part for the people. So Yale Haiti spends 58 grand to fly them out. Ah, just great work, everyone. And then Wyclef charges the Yale Haiti Foundation $100,000 to play a charity concert in Monaco. Oh, God, I think I need my barf bag. Whoop, no, false alarm. But I don't know how much more I can take. Uh, Oh, look, Yale Haiti spends $250,000 on a local Haitian TV station to advertise all of the great works the foundation was doing for its people. Did I mention that Wyclef had a control share in this TV station? But don't worry, you guys. Yale Haiti has earmarked $630,000 for infrastructure projects, like a hospital, a new plaza, and temporary homes. The contracts were secured by Eric Warnell Pierre, who was Wyclef's brother-in-law, and uh, looks like those projects were never built, even though those funds were labeled on Yale's tax forms as, quote, for the rebuilding of Haiti. It keeps going. There was a $1 million contract for a Haitian caterer to provide meals for the Haitian people. The caterer kept up their end of the bargain, but goes on to sue Yale Haiti for $430,000 of non-payment. But at the very least, Yale Haiti helped to boost morale. 
Reporters interview a Haitian woman named Diaoli Azidme. She runs an orphanage that features a mural of Wyclef Jean and his wife Claudinette. I bet she has some really nice things to say. Let's see. Azidme says, quote, If I had depended on Yele, these kids would all be dead by now. Ugh. And on top of all that, Yele Haiti hadn't been filing your taxes from 2005 to 2009. Oof. In total. The charity had $16 million in donations, and over $9 million of it went to expenses and salaries. Yes, any charity is going to have administrative expenses. However, the Better Business Bureau says that 35% of it max should go to operational costs, and the rest need to go to the cause. Yellow Haiti was spending over 57% on operational costs. Wyclef gets called out for this mismanagement. But instead of going on the apology tour, he is outraged at these unfair accusations, saying things like, yes, Yele Haiti hasn't been perfect, but he did not personally financially benefit in any way from the charity, okay? And this is my favorite point Wyclef made in his defense. You guys, why would he need to take any money from a charity when he already has a watch collection worth over $500,000? He also claimed that Yele is Haiti's greatest asset and ally. And also, 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 he decides this would be a great time to run for president of Haiti. He announces his candidacy on CNN's Wolf Blitzer, who immediately asks, are you sure, bruh? Wyclef's campaign lasted less than a month when Haiti rejected his bid for the presidency because Wyclef didn't live in Haiti. It was required by the Constitution that a candidate live in Haiti for five years, which seems completely reasonable. Wyclef's political career ends, and in 2012, the Yele Haiti Foundation dissolves. I really wanted to cut him some slack because there are countless other charities out there where if you take a close look at their numbers, they're not going to add up. And tons just for Haiti alone. The Red Cross raised over half a billion after the earthquake in 2010 to rebuild it. But look around, you're not seeing new roads, new infrastructure, schools, hospitals. Where did the money go? You will see a very similar unfortunate story with Bill and Hillary Clinton's foundation, Haiti Action Network and with Sean Penn's celebrity-backed Haitian relief organization. Both have been accused of severely mishandling their funds. At this point, I've come to expect this kind of sleazy, immoral behavior from politicians, and even from dudes that married Madonna, but not from my hip-hop artists. Especially someone who had such a deep, personal connection to the cause. I idolize the Fugees and Wyclef Jean, and he has broken middle school Angela's heart. God, Wyclef, I'm gonna have to play Lauren Hill's X Factor on loop today. But Wyclef Jean has moved on after Yele Haiti and his failed candidacy. He wrote a memoir about his life and he's gone back to making music. His home country of Haiti continues to go through incredible turmoil. In 2021, their sitting president, Jovenel Moise, was assassinated while sleeping in bed at his home. It is alleged that Rudolf Jaar, a Haitian-Chilean businessman, conspired with a group of Colombian mercenaries to murder Moise. But who is really behind the murder plot remains a highly debated mystery. Now in 2023, according to the UN, Haiti is rife with criminal groups who have killed more than 2,000 people in the first half of 2023, 
kidnap more than a thousand, and use sexual violence to terrorize the population. It's just heartbreaking. It seems like Haiti, right from the jump, has never been given a chance to thrive. They have always had that target on their backs. And I'm sitting here being all complainy pants about naughty charities not spending enough of their donations on Haiti. But I'm not out there raising money and organizing either. Maybe LA Haiti is a disappointment, but is there a net positive compared to sitting back and doing nothing at all? It's also so easy to imagine ourselves doing better in that position of power, but you never really know until you're in the driver's seat. It makes me think of this quote from Haitian-born journalist for the Miami Herald named Jacqueline Charles, who said, quote, In the heart of every Haitian, there's a sleeping president. Despite all of these seemingly insurmountable obstacles, many Haitian people still have hope that maybe they could be the ones to turn Haiti around. And I have hope too. Hope that another famous Haitian R&B singer could make an excellent leader. That's why I'm officially endorsing the idea of a President Jason Derulo. And I'm currently raising campaign donations now. Oh man, this one hurts in such a different way. But if you want even more juicy details about the Fugees, check out the hilarious three-part series from the podcast, The Fraudsters. And for even more recent history of Haiti, including the story of the murders of three broadcast journalists in Miami who spoke out against the coup d'etat of sitting President Aristide, listen to Silence the Radio Murders podcast series. And lastly, I want to plug the work of Jacqueline Charles, her Made in Miami series, which is her investigation into the assassination of Jovenel Moise. This chick is the real deal. Her work isn't all just depressing, corruption, death, devastation. She shows the beauty of the culture. You even get glimpses of hope and humor in her work. You can find Jacqueline Charles's articles in the Miami Herald online. And as always, get in touch with me to share your thoughts and join me in the Wyclef Jean Heartbreakers Club. You can email me directly at Angela at the truecrimefeed.com or join the True Crime Feed Facebook discussion group. Keep an open mind and be kind to fellow True Crime Feed friends. Stay tuned until after the break to hear my top three podcast power ranking of the week. Ah, <sighs> hey you. I'm so glad we found each other and get to share our special love for true crime podcasts. I don't ever want you to miss out on a wild story. That would be a crime in itself. So be sure to hit that follow or subscribe button on your podcast app and share your favorite episode with a friend so the next time you see each other, you can splurge about your latest true crime obsession. Thanks for spreading the word. And now back to the show. And we're back. Before we start the ranking, I have added two new shows to my queue. Looking forward to the first episodes dropping later in September. Those shows are The Estate from Tenderfoot TV and Chameleon's newest season, Gallery of Lies. I will let you know my opinions about these shows once the first few episodes drop. And now, without further ado, here are the three shows currently trending that I think are worth a listen. I present to you this week's podcast power ranking. At the number three spot, we have Betrayal on the Bayou. 
Here's a rundown from the show page. For almost two decades, DEA Special Agent Chad Scott ruled the streets just north of New Orleans. He controlled a network of snitches by convincing people he arrested to work for him as informants. Chad would stop at nothing to put drug dealers behind bars. His successes won awards at the DEA, but his willingness to bend the rules earned him a terrifying reputation on the streets. Some called him the Golden Boy, others called him White Devil. Investigators go over his career with a fine-tooth comb, asking the question, is Chad Scott the greatest DEA agent in the South, or is he a criminal? Ugh, I never know where the show is going. It is fluffing bananas. This week we have a grandma drug dealer in a confusing situation with Chad's task force member. And a party in a hotel room with more of said task force members being slipped ecstasy and all ending up in the shower together. So far, we've heard a lot about the gray area loopholes the DEA likes to take advantage of. But with this episode, we're getting a harrowing glimpse at straight up corruption. So don't miss the latest from Betrayal on the Bayou. At the number two spot, we have Believable, the Coco Berthman story. Here's a synopsis from the show page. Coco Berthman became internet famous by sharing her story of surviving sex trafficking as a young child growing up in Germany. She was sheltered and supported by families in Utah, where her faith and fame intertwined. But in 2022, Coco was arrested for raising money for a fake cancer diagnosis, and people began to doubt everything she had ever said. Is her life story truly one big elaborate lie? I am really loving how this show is evolving as well. Just when I start to think of Coco as a victim, we get a story this week about how she terrorized a couple that were bending over backwards to take care of her, including torturing her, quote, friend through these bizarre cult-like methods involving the music of Celine Dion. Believable, the Coco Berthman story is a wild ride. And at the number one spot, we have Over My Dead Body, Gone Hunting. Here's a summary from the show's page. When Mike Williams vanishes on a hunting trip, the authorities presume he was eaten by alligators. But one woman begins to suspect the true predators may lurk much closer to home. It sets her on a tireless crusade to uncover what really happened to Mike. A story about an obsessive love affair, a scandalous secret, and a mother's battle for justice. We are really getting into the case-solving mode now. The stakes are very, very high for one woman who is wearing a wire to trap the probable killer, and things aren't going as planned. This is a classic tantalizing true crime case. It's not doing anything particularly new or innovative with the genre. However, so far, this story has been executed to perfection. I will only stop listening to this one over my dead body. Now for my miss of the week. We have the murder years. Here's a summary. A woman reinvestigates the murders that defined her high school years in the 1980s. Murders that appear to be happening all over again, with a new round of unexplainable, bizarre, and violent deaths. 
Is it just a stroke of bad luck for this charming small town, or is it a dark curse that refuses to be buried? All right, so I chose to give this one a shot for the most vapid reason. It was because I love the podcast art, this 80s retro cool blue neon purple laser lettering. It was right up my alley. I figured the podcast would be fun to match, but no, it's not. I couldn't make it more than 10 minutes in. The tone of this show is void of any color or flavor. And on top of that, the author has changed the names of the people involved, including her own name, and even the name of the town before she starts telling the story. So it feels like it's crossed the line into fiction at this point, forcing me to fictionally send the murder years down my podcast queue trapdoor. Find out next week if Over My Dead Body Gone Hunting will stay in the number one spot as the series continues or if a new show will barge in and take its place. Let me know what trending shows are in your top three and what show fell through your podcast queue trapdoor. I'll meet you here next week to dust off another superb true crime show from the archive for your next feeding fix. today's true crime feed. Don't forget to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I post links to my top three favorite shows of the week and bring you fabulous visual aids for every episode. Be sure to follow the show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to join the conversation. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave a review and tell your fellow partners in crime to tune in to true crime feed. Thanks for writing along and allowing me to be your audio accomplice. Join me next week for another feeding.